Father, we ask that as we come to your word now that you would speak to us. We come confessing that we need a word from you this morning. That we do not live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from your mouth. Nourish us. Feed us, we pray, Lord, so that we would be filled and strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, back in September, Pastor Jonathan kicked us off in a new series in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn in your Pew Bibles uh, to page 567 if you don't have a Bible with you. But that's where we'll be this morning. We'll be back in the book of Isaiah, and we're doing this series in the book of Isaiah kind of in tandem with uh, the book of Galatians as Pastor Dave leads us through that. So this morning we take a break from our New Testament series and jump back into the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah and where we will, Lord willing, by the end of the morning, finish chapter 1. I'm going to start us out by reading the passage we'll be in. We'll pick up in verse 21 and go all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 31. Picking up in verse 21. Isaiah chapter 1. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murders. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everybody loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers. And like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. I was recently listening to a podcast over the last month, and one of the episodes in this podcast told the story of a woman named Jasmine Gray. 
It was incredibly moving as I listened along to Jasmine's story. It really was a tragic one from the outset. She was homeless at age 14. No parental guidance, and really through poor choices as well as even more difficult circumstances, she found herself in a life of drug addiction, criminal behavior. And after some time of this going on, she resolves to herself to turn things around. And she starts her own business successfully as a late teen, trying to support her child as a single mom. Until she was robbed and abused. And that pushed her over the edge into relapse, which ultimately landed her in prison. After prison, Jasmine had to pay restitution of other debts that she had piled up before her incarceration, over $30,000 paying back. Today, only Four years after getting out of prison, Jasmine is a homeowner. She's debt-free. She has an emergency fund saved up, and she's in process of being reunited with her son. She owns a business and earns six figures annually. It was, as I listened, a powerful story of redemption. To see this beautiful new human being emerge from the rags and rubble of her own previous poor decisions and extremely difficult circumstances. Well, why do stories like Jasmine's grip us? I mean, even when we sort of know it's coming, right, we, we get captured we, we get captivated. Tears roll down afresh. I think in part, reason, one of the reasons why Jasmine's stories and stories like hers grip us is because we are hardwired for them. We love stories of redemption. The, the biggest story in our universe is a story of redemption. Personal newness for you. Personal newness for me. Cosmic newness one day. But the difference between redemption in somebody's life like Jasmine's And the redemption that's promised in the gospel is that stories in the Bible don't inspire us to redeem ourselves. They're not even meant to inspire us to do such a thing. The gospel story that we find in the scriptures is all about redemption by another. Redemption from God. Well, what is redemption? Redemption is this subcategory within the larger category and story of salvation. Redemption is 
What explains how God saves us? How does He? Well, He does so by paying the personal price. In real life, there is no easy way out of sin. We daily get ourselves into trouble. We make foolish, sinful choices. We sin our way right into bondage. And then we go on and we try to cover it up. We try to cover it up. We make excuses. We dig ourselves into a deeper and deeper hole. Every day, we create conditions in which we literally and actually earn the righteous judgment of God that we deserve. And for his part, what does God do? Well, he offers to get us out of our trouble at his expense. He offers to absorb within himself the consequences that we have set in motion. He pays the price so that we don't have to, because we can't anyway. That is redemption. And for you, if you are here this morning and you have sinned your way into hopelessness, you feel as though you're boxed in, you can be redeemed by God. That's what our passage is about this morning. Our main idea that comes out of Isaiah chapter 1 is this, that God redeems the unfaithful according to His faithfulness. God redeems the unfaithful according to His faithfulness. We'll sort of divide our passage into two parts this morning, supporting that main idea. Part one, we see the picture of an unfaithful people. The picture of an unfaithful people. Now, the passage that we're in this morning, it concludes the introduction of the whole book of Isaiah. And picking up there in verse 21, going all the way through 26, the prophet answers the question of what for Israel? What has Israel become? And what does God plan to do about it? It's in this passage that Isaiah shows us at one time the rebellious people of Israel as well as this redemption promised by God. Look at the way he begins in 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice. You know, the Bible says that as God's people we have been engaged to be married to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. God's love for us is a jealous love. It's one that claims us for Himself 
alone. And the church is described as the bride of Christ, Ephesians 5. He's going to present us to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, holy and blameless. See that pictured in Revelation 19 to 21. And the Bible says that right now, in this life, when we flirt our allegiances with other things, we are committing what the Bible calls spiritual whoredom, spiritual adultery, Hosea 1 through 3, James chapter 4. And y'all, that's exactly why the word how stands at the beginning of this passage. The, the, the very first word in the Hebrew text, as well as in our English translation, is translated how. That, that word how signals to us that this is a lament. This is a heart cry of sorrow from heaven. Something heartbreaking has happened. Something that was once beautiful has been dirtied in the sight of God. Something that was irreplaceable has been lost. Something that was designed to be good has been corrupted. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the preacher who wrote that every institution tends to produce its opposite. That's true, isn't it? This side of heaven, even the best institutions, even ones designed for good, still have the danger of producing its opposite. Israel here was saved by God. They were meant to hold up God's law and His wisdom and His justice to the watching nations. But over time, corruption settled in. The people drifted from their call until one day they weren't even recognizable as a nation. The, the, the previous section describes them as Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Jesus himself, when he came to his followers and ministered to us on earth, he spoke to us and said, you are the salt of the earth. But he warned us, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. The church of Jesus Christ is the salt of the earth. There is no other. We are here, y'all, we are here this morning, and we go out into the world through the rest of the week to help people to get a taste truly of what God is like. But if the church is not full of justice, that is fully demonstrating what human life is supposed to be like, we hear a heart cry of sorrow from heaven. Verse 21, moving on, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Uh, Isaiah says, interestingly here, 
In, in this world, righteousness is personified as this lonely traveler in hostile surroundings. But in the city of God, righteousness finds a room. Righteousness finds a welcome embrace, a, a celebration of its presence. Righteousness lodged in her. But, but Isaiah goes on to say, things have changed. Those were the good old days in Israel. Not so anymore. The spiritual neighborhood has, has gone down the drain. And Isaiah ties this back ultimately to their unfaithfulness to God. Be, because we, we, we cannot miss this here. Unfaithfulness to God always translates into a corrosion of the bonds that hold people together. Even in the church. That's why John writes in his letter, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Does the name Whitaker Chambers ring a bell to a few of you? Well, Whitaker Chambers spied for the Soviet Union in this country in the 1930s. Then he became a Christian. And, and some of you in here may even remember when Whitaker Chambers stood up against Alger Hiss and exposed him as a spy in the State Department in the 1950s. Well, well Whitaker Chambers wrote, went on to write this memoir titled Witness, where he tells the story about running into the daughter of a former German diplomat in Moscow. And this daughter was explaining to him why it was that her father went from being extremely pro-communist at one time to being a relentless anti-communist. And this little girl goes on to tell Mr. Whitaker that he was immensely pro-Soviet until one night her father stayed in Moscow. And as he stayed there that night, he heard screams. That was it. He heard screams that he couldn't unhear. And that was enough for him. When the church, the kingdom of God, do we ever hear screams? We do. More than we ever should. More than we ever should. And that's one reason, amongst other reasons, why there are ex-Christians in the world. In the church, some people have come and encountered screams when they should have heard songs. They should have heard the songs of the redeemed. They saw wrongdoing when they should have seen righteousness. 
Brothers and sisters, consider our calling as God's people. We have the privilege, albeit imperfectly, to reflect to the world what the new heavens and the new earth is supposed to be like. We're we're called to be a community where the fruit of the Spirit abound, not where the flesh is unbridled. We're, We're called to be a people where God's character is reflected, not twisted and misrepresented and doled down. We're a people who are called to forgive freely, who don't keep records of wrongdoing, who believe the best of one another without assuming or assigning motives. Consider our calling as a community of God. Verse 22 Isaiah goes on, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Isn't that how sin deceives us? You know, sin promises to spice up our lives a little bit. But it only just dilutes everything. It cheapens us. We, we get duped into thinking that sinning is the way to experience life in the full. But as we give ourselves over to it, it just empties us. Our silver becomes dross. Our best wine mixed with water. Our peculiar, powerful witness becomes common. Emptied of its power. Y'all, that's why, brothers and sisters, we need one another's encouragement along the way. That's why we need one another to help us as we collectively follow Jesus and not to get tricked or to be deceived by the world, not to play into the same old tricks that the world and the flesh and the devil are scheming against us in. We need one another and we need God's Word to see things as they truly are. Verse 23, 24, your princes are rebels and the companion of thieves. Everybody loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. There's an ancient Jewish paraphrase of the Old Testament. It's a translation from Hebrew into Aramaic, but it's, it's a paraphrase, kind of like the way you think about the message today for, for the Bible. It was called Targum. But, but the paraphrase in Targum helps us to understand what Isaiah is saying here. This is how it reads. All of them love to accept a bribe saying, a man to his neighbor, assist me in my case so that I will repay you in your case. Today we call it If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, it's how people grease the gears in everyday life. And and it's not always wrong. But when it subverts God's justice, it is wrong. 
no matter what, no matter how expedient the outcome. And that's Isaiah's point, is that when responsible people choose expediency, they are not judges. They become auctioneers with the most favorable treatment going to whoever the highest bidder is. And the reason why helpless people got stepped on in Israel is because powerful people lost their sense of who God was. The same is true today. When the only people who matter are successful people, powerful people, strong people, formidable people. Life becomes savage. If no one believes that the the very hairs on their head are numbered by a Father who is in heaven, who cares about them, well, they have no logical reason to care for anybody else. And that is why the most important thing about you and the most important thing about me, the most essential core of our being is your sense of who God is. Your sense of who God is. It's been said like this. The most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. Well, what do you think of when you think of God? Do you see Him as He is? Do you see Him at all? Now, you might ask, okay, I get it. I want to grow in my sense of God. I, I, want to be, I want to be more aware of Him. How do I do it? Let's keep reading. Verse 24, Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. That's part of your answer. Do you see how God identifies Himself here? He, he starts heaping term upon term upon term to, to reawaken this sense of who He is to His people. So what does this mean for us? Well, if we want to live truly with a sense of God, if we want to live our day today as before the Lord, The the very best way for us to grow in that trembling of the Lord is to listen to what He has said about Himself. For us to truly perceive God as He is. We need our perception to be fashioned more and more to the reality that God speaks about Himself. There is no better place to go to know God than God Himself. He has spoken of who He is, who He's like, 
to grasp more of His fullness. That is the primary source for us to know of who God is, is His very own self-disclosure of Himself. How do we know the mind of God? From God's very words, when He speaks His mind. And He tells us what He is like. He tells us He is a good shepherd. He tells us that He is here and with us. He tells us that He is high and lifted up. He tells us that though your sins are like scarlet, I can make them white as snow. And He goes on speaking and says that I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. This is the wonderful thing about the God of the Bible. The the wonderful thing about God is that no matter what happens, no matter what anybody else says, God will never just go away. He is always and ever there. He will never stop being God. He can't stop being true to himself. And Isaiah's whole point here, as he sort of floods our vision with the glory of God and God's eternal and unchanging commitment, he's he's saying that God's eternal and unchanging commitment to himself is our very hope. There is a Lord of heaven, a Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel who cares about his own offended justice and his his commitment to his own cause is his people's hope. He will get relief on his enemies and revenge himself on his foes even when God's people are compromised. Now after all of that, after the accusations that we've seen in verse 23, after God's resolve there in verse 24, what would we expect to come next? Wouldn't we just expect like total annihilation? Complete obliteration? Total devastation? We would. But redemption is surprising. Part two, the promise of redemption. The promise of redemption. Verse 25, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye, remove all your alloy, and I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God is able to purify His church. In fact, He promises to. He knows exactly how. He has industrial strength cleansing agents as His disposal. He will smelt away our dross as with lye. He says He is able to remove the stubborn stains of long-standing, deeply embedded, well-established sins. 
God is able to recreate lost purity. He is able to take us and do a purifying fire and take us all the way through to restoration to the faithful city. The church at her best will be a reality. And we can be a part of it. Now I want to show you something before we go on to verse 27 of what happens in verse 25 and 26 that I think is pretty important. Verse 25, do you see those words, I will turn? And then in verse 26, he says, I will restore. Well, those two English verbs are translated from the same Hebrew verb. We, we have two different English verbs in our passage only because the English can't fully cooperate and sort of capture the full sense of the Hebrew word here. The point is this. One God acting in one way is able to accomplish two different things simultaneously for His people. When God turns His hand against His own children, it is not a disaster. It is an act of discipline, and it is an act of restoration. The, the discipline of God is perfectly suited to achieve exactly what He intends in purifying and restoring His children, both at the same time. Jesus said, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Well, what is he doing in your life right now that you don't fully understand? Whatever it is, you can trust him. You can learn to expect the goodness of God show up in the most unlikely ways. When it seems as though the Lord has turned His hand against you, believer, He is at the same time working to purify you and to restore you and to bring you closer to Himself to enable a, a greater degree of trust. And He invites you to, to let Him to do His deep and refining and purifying work in you. Verses 27 to 31 concludes the passage. But it's not this sort of shallow platitude of an ending. Why are these verses here? These verses are here because Isaiah does not want us to misunderstand. He's going to qualify everything that he said in verse 21 to 26. That God will certainly restore His people. 
God will certainly redeem His own. He will certainly have revival and reformation. That is certain. The church's glory is not passing. The church's corruption is passing. And the church will be beautifully pure forever. But, but, Isaiah says, for right now, in this moment of time, before that perfect ultimacy, how do we enter into that experience of redemption? How is the church today in our generation redeemed? Verse 21 to 26, he fortifies our confidence in God's gracious intention for his people so that now, verse 27 to 31, in our own situations, we can choose confidently to follow God into the refining fire and we'll stay there long enough for his purpose to be fulfilled in us. This is what he says. Here's the decision. 27 to 28, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. God does not redeem us by casually sweeping aside his own standards. That would be no redemption at all. God pays the price demanded by His own justice and righteousness. The Bible says that at the cross of Jesus, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We are redeemed at a cost to God that we will never understand. We are bought With a price, we are redeemed at a cost to God that we are given the rest of eternity to search the unsearchable riches of. He put our real moral guilt onto Christ who is crucified, who lived a life that we should, should have lived, who died the death that we should have died. And in Christ, God satisfied the demands of his own justice. And our only part, Isaiah says here, is to repent. We are called to repent. How could it be otherwise? Now, when I use that word repent, what I mean is that we are all going the wrong direction. We're all going this way. God's over there. We're all going this way. Repentance means to turn from going the wrong way and to turn to God and to embrace the cross of Christ. That is true repentance. We turn away from the way that we're going and we turn to God. In our repentance, we add nothing to the value of the price that Jesus paid. But the kind of love that Jesus showed for us claims all that we are. Claims everything. We are no longer our own. We've been bought 
with a price. The, the, the other side of the coin of God paying a price for us is that we are now His. Our lives are a blank slate. We say now, have your way with me. Whatever it is, whatever you've chosen, whatever you intend for my life, I'm yours. And we give ourselves freely to Him. This happens once decisively at our conversion, and yet it happens ongoingly as believers. We repent every day. We need to repent even of our good things that we've done with the wrong motives every day. We need to receive afresh with empty hands the righteousness of somebody else. God's objective accomplishment at the cross becomes the redeeming power evidenced inside of us by our repentance. That's the way that redemption shows itself in our lives right here, right now, in our problems today. Just as there is no way around the cross of Christ... It's equally true that there is no way around repentance. There is an alternative to repentance. Verse 28, rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. That is the decision lying before every one of us. Will we repent and be redeemed? Will we rebel and be consumed? God wants to redeem us. He paid the full price of the cross. The question is, will we turn to Him? Even if He takes us through the refining fire. Now finally, Isaiah is just relentless. He, he won't let us go. He corners us in these last verses, pleading with us to embrace repentance by putting up for us in plain view what becomes of the people who say no to God. Read this. Verse 29. You shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. You shall blush for the gardens that you've chosen. You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Why are these verses so confrontational? You know, you can ask that question about a lot of passages in the Bible, especially ones in the prophets. We're about to get a lot more of these. Why are they so confrontational? Well, God is pressing His point because, don't miss this, we tend to trivialize ourselves. We do. God takes us more seriously than we take ourselves often. You know, we will think, this doesn't really matter. My decisions, my attitudes, my thoughts, my feelings, doesn't really make that much of a difference, does it? 
And God is screaming to us through this passage, you are more significant than you know. Every moment of your life matters before me. Your choices have lasting repercussions beyond what you can see. Every moment I give you matters. And God is saying, that is why I'm confronting you. I love you too much to not tell you the truth and to pursue you. Yield to me. And the truth is this, y'all. If we set the course of our lives by the earthly things that we desire and choose, those words are right there in verse 29, our mere likes and dislikes, we will end up with nothing. The key to unlock the metaphors that we see there in verse 29 through 30, I think, is verse 31, where God says that the strong person and his work, the, so, so the oaks and the gardens, they're figures of speech of human strength and potential and organization and accomplishment. And his point is this, that human strength and brilliance will be your own undoing. Yeah, your social media, your trophy cases, your bank accounts, your big cars, your nice houses, they might all look really nice. But if our trust is ultimately in our own achievement, our own earning potential, our own brilliance, it will all be gone in a moment like a spark. Be like smoke that you grasp for. But there's nothing left in your hand. We must empty ourselves through repentance to experience the fullness of God. We must be buried in death like Christ's in order to be raised to walk in newness of life. We must let go of the pride of life and possessions in order to receive with open hands the gift of life who is Christ. Personal, timely repentance is what opens up life to God's way, to His redeeming work. The weakness of repentance is how we experience the power of redemption. You may be facing a major personal struggle in your life right now. You might be wondering, which way am I going to go? You may be under heavy temptation. You may have unresolved tension between you and God. You might even be trying to avoid talking to Him right now. Maybe you have lost your purity. What will help you is knowing this. To know that there is a Redeemer for somebody like you. He has paid the price. You don't need to add to it. He has sacrificed himself on your behalf. 
and you are no longer your own. You have been bought with a price, and you can trust Him. Open your heart to Him. Come to Him. Speak to Him with honest dealings about your real needs. He will not despise you. He will redeem you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your promise of redemption. How sweet it is. We pray that as we prepare ourselves to come to your table, that that redemption we would realize afresh. That we would not only know it to be true, but that we would taste and see that you are good and that we would revel in that goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.